Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to uh, the book of Exodus. And reading in Exodus chapter 20. We'll find this on page 61 in the church Bibles. And tonight we are coming to the end of our study on the Ten Commandments, and we're focusing in on verse 17, the last commandment. But we'll begin our reading back at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Throughout uh, this series on the Ten Commandments, one of the things that we have been uh, impressing upon ourselves is the nature of the law, that the law of God deals not just with the outward behavior, but it is dealing with the inward intentions of our heart. It's dealing with uh, the desires, uh, the thoughts. It's dealing with us inwardly and outwardly. And uh, we see that, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus Uh, unpacks for us the meaning of the law of God. But it would be a mistake uh, to turn to the Sermon on the Mount and to think that Jesus is teaching something radically new or that he's taking the law in a way that was unknown before him. As if the law of God in the Old Covenant was only dealing with outward behavior and that Jesus changed the law to now making it dealing with the inward behavior. Uh, We can't make sense of David's words when David says, search me, O God, and know my heart, and know my thoughts, try me, O God, and know my deeds. That David was asking God to search him uh, on the inside. 
He was, he was pressing God that he wanted to be pure and aligned with God on the outward and on the inward. David wasn't just concerned about his outward behavior. He wanted to be aligned with God's will uh, from the inside out. But we don't even have to go to David to see that in the old covenant, the people of God were concerned about their heart's desire, about their thoughts and about the motives of their life. We can just turn to the Ten Commandments themselves. And we can't get away from this nature of the inward and the outward, even in the Ten Commandments themselves. And so as we come to this Tenth Commandment, we see that the law has always dealt with the, law, uh, with the heart. It's always been dealing with our thoughts and our desires. This evening, we want to look at this last commandment. And we want to see that because our desires uh, are disordered or uh, disoriented and distorted, we need God to transform and to direct our desires. We want to think about the 10th commandment in three thoughts. We want to think about the idea of desire itself. Then we want to think about our desires being distorted uh, or disordered. And then finally, we want to think about our desires being directed according to God's will. First, we want to think about desire itself, just the idea of our desires. As we come to think about this commandment, the word covet, we can translate it as desire. Uh, the word here is a neutral word. Uh, it's neither good nor bad. It depends on the context and how it is being used to be able to understand whether this is a good desire or a bad desire. Here in the 10th commandment, it is uh, explaining it as a bad desire, and so it translates it as covet. To covet, then, is to desire something that is outside of God's will. It is to des uh, to to desire something uh, that is uh, against uh, God's revelation. We all live in a world where there is two very different, in fact, we could say opposing views on desires. You think about Eastern religions, Eastern spirituality. You think about Buddhism. Buddhism pinpoints the problem as desire. There is suffering in this world because people desire. If people stopped desiring, it would remove suffering. Therefore, our pursuit in this life should be to pull back desire. It should be to cut ourselves off from others. It should be to uh, remove desire altogether and to live in such a way that no longer are we affected by the suffering around us. In this Eastern mindset, desire is something that we want to get rid of. And when we get rid of it, then we can aim uh, at fulfillment. But this approach to desire is not only problematic, but as the late Anglican James Packer said, it is utterly inhuman. Uh, it is fundamentally denying something about what it means to be human. Because a human being is not just a brain on a stick. To be human is to be created with desires. And so we can't live our lives simply trying to suppress or to uh, deny desires. Uh, that's not how we are meant to live. But over against that Eastern spirituality, you have what is becoming more and more prevalent in the Western world, a different kind of spirituality, 
where many Western people look at desire as something that is almost an untouchable, something that is always to be embraced, and something that is meant to be fulfilled. Uh, many people in the Western world operate with a mindset that our desires are the purest compass for how we should live our lives. You should follow your desires. Just follow your heart. Uh, that's what Disney constantly tells us in their, their messaging. Our desires are right all the time, and we shouldn't challenge them. But against, over against both of these views, you'll notice that the 10th commandment doesn't actually fit into either one of them. And it actually challenges both of those viewpoints. To the Eastern spirituality, the scripture affirms that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. As mentioned, we are not brains on a stick, but that we are created, body and soul, with desires, for desires to be matched. You think about how God created us. God created us in such a way that we had desires that would be fulfilled. That, that God arranges the human being in such a way that they are meant to enjoy this world. You think of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were put in a garden. And we were told that they were surrounded by trees that bore every kind of fruit, every kind of fruit that was pleasant to the eyes. The word there is desirable. In other words, what made paradise paradise was is that it was a desirable place to be. That God created us to enjoy this world. And that everything good is to be received with thanks to God. So uh, we, we see that the Eastern mindset that we have to cut off desires from us. That, that is a, an unbiblical, it is a, a radically inhuman way of thinking about life. That we're not meant to cut off the desire portion of our lives and just live as, as robots, as it were. The scriptures go on to say not only that we were created in the garden or our first parents in a desirable place, but God created us uh, in such a way that we were meant to enjoy and for desires. Uh, the scriptures teach us that we are supposed to desire. You're supposed to desire your spouse. You're supposed to desire justice in your community. You're supposed to desire to see uh, families flourish. You're supposed to desire and love other people. And most of all, you're to desire God above all else. We are creatures that desire. The problem isn't desire itself, but desire that is misdirected, uh, that becomes a problem. So the Eastern spirituality leaves us uh, wanting. Again, the scriptures say things like, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. But when you deny that there's a God or the relevance of God, you have nothing to base your desires in that keeps them navigated and within the bounds. But over against the Western mindset, this command clearly establishes that there are boundaries for desire. And to cross those boundaries is out of bounds and out of place. Many people in our own civilization would say that your desires are always right. We hear it in our ads, we hear it in marketing, that our desires must be our truest self, and so they must be good. We must follow them. 
And yet what the scriptures are teaching us here is, is that there are boundaries to our desires and that to cross over them is to be wrong-minded. It is to be going in a wrong direction. Uh, and notice here, uh, that's what is embedded in the command. The command does not say, you shall not desire, you shall not covet. What does it say? It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You won't covet your neighbor's wife. You won't covet and desire things that are out of bounds to you. You won't covet things that are not yours. There are boundaries to your desires, and to cross over them is to reject God's ordering of things. It is to live uh, 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 in a way that is out of bounds. And the difference between right desires and wrong desires is seen in light of God's will. That's not arbitrary, because to desire something that is out of bounds is really a statement of wanting to be free from the Lord's governance in our lives. So as we think about living in a culture where we we hear that constantly about our desires being uh, right. We're driven by our desires to the point that our desires are something that almost feel like we can't challenge them. Here is a commandment that tells us our, com- our desires are powerful, but they need to be kept in check. That desire is something that is embedded into what we are as humans, and yet there are boundaries. And if we don't respect those, it brings misery. And so this is what this commandment is really all about. It is about desires and not having them become uh, misdirected. Because when our desires become misdirected, it does bring misery. And we can see that in many different ways. Uh, So how is it that we see the distortion of these desires? Maybe you're sitting here this evening and... uh, Some of these commandments sound important to you. Maybe the commandment on murder sounds important. The commandment about stealing sounds important. Maybe even the commandment about uh, lying or telling the truth. That sounds important. But maybe when we come to this final commandment, it sounds a little ho-hum. It sounds a little flat. How important is it uh, that we uh, not covet? But as you begin to unpack this, you begin to see that this is This commandment is very important. And we see what happens when we do covet. It brings misery individually, inwardly. It brings misery socially. And it brings misery, even we can say, spiritually speaking. It affects us. And it affects the world that we live in. We see it, for instance, when we think socially. Coveting implies the resentment of the prosperity of other people. When other people flourish, when other people succeed, when other people do well in life, if we cannot rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but instead we turn it back on ourselves and we say, that should be for me. We're really taking away the joy that someone else has. And we're, we're bent back in on ourselves. We're not, we're not celebrating God's goodness that he has given to someone else, but rather we are becoming bitter at what we ourselves do not have. Uh, It is being directed back on ourselves, and it cannot delight in the flourishing uh, of others. Uh, So it is really a resentment of God's providence. It's a resentment of our own situation. It is really uh, a bitterness of the soul. 
that's a that's a serious thing because it's eating away at us and it's it's pulling away our ability to to come together and to celebrate with others uh, in their prosperity. But we also see the seriousness of coveting, uh, even when we think about it in relationship uh, to God. Coveting is opposed to finding our satisfaction in God. But when we, when we push God away from the equation, if you think about your desires without reference to God, then it breeds a focus on self-interest, which lends itself to coveting. Because if I'm living ultimately to please myself, it becomes like a, a, like a dragon that you can never ultimately feed. That it will continue to crave more and more because there's no boundaries. If you don't recognize that God has established boundaries, there's nothing to rein in and to say, this is beyond boundaries. There's nothing that is to anchor you and what is a good desire and a bad desire. It just becomes a desire that craves satisfaction. And so here we see it has an effect on us, uh, spiritually speaking, as well as uh, individually. As societies exclude God from their focus, we become increasingly given over then to covetousness. Listen to what one person, a social scientist in Australia, wrote. Uh, His name is Richard uh, Eckersley, and he writes the following. Uh, uh, speaking about the government, uh, uh, speaking about the country of Australia, he says, robbed of a broader meaning to our lives, we have appeared to have entered into an era of mass obsession, usually with ourselves. Our appearance, our health and fitness, our work, our sex lives, our children's performance, and our personal development. He goes on to say, it may be then that the greatest wrong that we are doing to our children is not the broken families or the scarcity of jobs, damaging as those are, but the creation of a culture that gives them nothing greater to live for than themselves. What's the greatest asset, the acid that is eating away at our contemporary culture? He's saying it's not the breakdown of the families. It's not the job scarcity and all the financial pressures that that puts on people. It's the fact that from one generation to another generation, as people have cut off God from the equation, the only thing that we are passing on to our children is enjoy yourself. Just go out and enjoy yourself. Just fulfill all your dreams, which not only places a huge burden on them, But it more than that gives them nothing to live for greater than themselves. He goes on to say, not God, not king, not country. There's nothing of meaningness that drives them. What are you living for beyond yourself? And what he's saying is, is that coveting is not a satisfactory pursuit in life. It's an acid because it's never filled like a dragon. It just continues to crave. It's not satisfied. And so here we start to see how uh, misery comes when desires are disordered, when desires are uh, lived and shaped without reference to God. Coveting is a heart language. It is really saying, if only I had that, then my life would be good. If only I had that, then my life would be fulfilled. If what they had is what I had, I would be satisfied. But the truth is, is that even if we had that, because there's no boundaries, 
our heart's desires begin to build and to find more things to say that towards. If I only had that as well, if I only had that, then I would be satisfied. And this cycle repeats itself over and over again. We look for more and more satisfaction. So coveting becomes very problematic because one, it tells us that there's nothing higher than the satisfying of your desires as the meaning of your life. That your life consists of nothing more than satisfying your own desires. That's it. But then secondly, it will only end in frustration because coveting is by definition an unsatisfied state. Because there are no boundaries, there are no restraints, our desires uh, to continue to long for more and more uh, will allow the object of our desires to take on greater prominence in our lives. You may have heard of the short story by Leo Tolstoy, a Russian novelist. Uh, He gave uh, a short story about this very thing, where a person was given the opportunity to purchase as much land as he could walk across in the course of one day with the provision that he returned back before sunset. But when do you draw the line? A little bit more. I can keep going. I can get a little bit more. I can get a little bit more before sunset. When does a person say that's enough? And here is that that problem that our heart's desire continues to crave more and more. We buy into the lie that if I only had that, then I would be satisfied. Our desires then become a functional God because they are controlling, having a controlling influence on our lives, which will lead to frustration because they become out of place and cannot provide what we long them to do. That's why Paul writes that coveting is idolatry. Paul's not trying to beef it up and to say it's it's, it's a big deal. He's saying this is what it is. It's a big deal because it's idolatry. It's, it's allowing your desires to have the place of God in your life. Whatever my desires want, I, I submit to them. And so it will bring misery because it cannot fulfill the meaning of life. Because they will never ultimately be satisfied. It will end in frustration. Uh, uh, and it only breeds division and alienation. But then when we think about this law, that's what the law was meant to do. It was meant to show us the problem. goes right down to our desire level. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7, that there's no escaping the law's intention here. Uh, That in Romans, he wrote to the Romans, he appealed to this very commandment to show how the law searches and exposes the problem of our sin. He says in chapter 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to him. So Paul uh, uh, came to a realization that that the law deals with the heart, and coveting is, is a sin, but it shows something of his own problem, that he is someone who is disoriented and disordered, even at the level of his desires, that he does not want the things that he ought to want, that he's someone who is so mixed up that he needs God uh, to deliver him from it. And that's why he says, wretched man that I am, 
who will deliver me from this body of death. The command about coveting showed him that he was a sinner and that he needed God's grace. But Paul can answer uh, that question, who will deliver me from this uh, wretched body, with the answer that thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. What is it that is going to deliver us from a coveting state? Ultimately, it's knowing that there is a savior for our sins, but also to know that God's grace also entails producing a new affection, that it would produce within us new desires. It's not by cutting off desire altogether, but rather it's by transforming our desires and expanding our desires. That we find something greater to live for than ultimately myself. That we find something more worthy of our life. Something that accounts for all of reality. Something that is worthy in terms of its beauty. And Paul ultimately sees that in Christ. Here is God's grace that has been shown to us in Jesus. There is one who has come to pay for our sins. But more than that, he shows us one who accounts for all of reality. One that will provide meaning for my life, but one over time that will not leave me dissatisfied, but will find that I'll be satisfied and content because I know that the Lord is just and good and I can submit to his providence. My feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why is it that they get everything and I don't? What's the solution to envy? What's the solution when we see so much disparity between people and their own experiences? People have such very different lives. How do we live our lives not controlled and defined by what I have passed through in my circumstances? It's ultimately being able to discover that God is in control and that God is good and I can submit to his care. How do I know that God is good? Through the cross. How do I know that God is in control? Through the cross. And so we can live as we trust in the Lord Jesus in such a way that sees desire something good. We can submit to God's boundaries and we can live not with restlessness, but with rest. The Christian life is not one that is lived in misery, but it's one that's lived with a state of blessedness. That's what Paul is getting at here. Someone who is more worthy of our affections, someone who directs our affections uh, so that we're not bound by our own uh, disordered desires. When the Lord Jesus came, he reveals to us the glory of God so that we might find our greatest delight in him and that God would shape and direct us in all our desires. And so when a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus and finds God as their chief desire, it reorders all their other desires and allows them to have their proper place. They avoid the common pitfalls that we've been talking about and that shapes the way that people consider desire. They find satisfaction in terms of fulfillment. Eastern religions try to remove desire because it only leads to suffering. But the death and the resurrection of Jesus shows us that God overcomes suffering and it restores desire to its proper place. Desire does not need to be denied. 
because there is a God who sets all things right. But it also brings satisfaction in terms of meaning. Delighting in God and having his saving grace is able to answer the question of meaning. A covetous life is a life that is serving oneself. My greatest meaning is satisfying my own desires. That won't prove satisfactory over time. And at the end of our lives, it'll leave us with resentment because desires were still unmet. But here we see one, uh, we see um, meaning fulfilled. Delighting in God and his saving grace is able to answer the question of meaning of life. It transcends my own situation. It remains stable over time. And it is able to take into account all of reality as well. So there's desire. Desire is something given by God. It is something that is to be directed by God. There's the disorderedness of desire. When we uh, resent the prosperity of others. When we are unable to submit to God's providence. But there's also uh, the direction or the deliverance in our desires. It's not by the suppression of desire, but that transformation of it. When we become fixated on the Lord Jesus and the love that he has shown, then our lives uh, are able to reshape the way that we live. We will be able to appreciate things in their proper place. We will be able to rejoice with others in their rejoicing because we're not setting our hearts satisfaction on them ultimately. And so whatever our life situation is, we can, we can rejoice with someone even when they have something that we don't. Not because we don't desire it, but we see in God's providence it hasn't been given to us. We're able to submit these things to God's care and to God's wisdom. So if you're sitting here this evening as someone uh, who is discontent, then turn to the Lord with that discontentment. Don't continue living simply resenting what you don't have, but rather turn to someone who is greater than uh, even these earthly things and realize that God is the greatest gift of all. The greatest gift of all was God giving his own son so that in him we might have life to know God to know the forgiveness of sins and to live in light of that perspective and not to simply be wrapped up in what I don't have before me. We might be uh, uh, living then uh, frustrated uh, by what we don't have, but we can sit here knowing that if we have Christ, then we have what is necessary. We have what we need and we're able to be satisfied in him. The Christian learns to live in all conditions, knowing that the Lord is good and can be trusted. We can rest in his care and be content in his dealings with us. And so as, as you go into this new week, thinking about desires, ask yourself, am I satisfied with God? Or is my joy wrapped up in something else. If I just had that, then I would be satisfied. Maybe we don't have a, a big enough view of the glory of God. And maybe when we live in light of what Christ has done, it'll transform us by God's spirit to treasure him and to be able to hold these other things in their proper place. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about desire, that you would help us to navigate uh, through this web, uh, to be able to see desire as not something evil, uh, but to see it as something that needs to be directed by your grace. We confess, Lord, that we easily attach things in a disproportionate way. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, to see you as worthy of our, our heart's desire, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength, that we would be able to do so in response to the revelation of your grace through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would be able to live uh, not in a state of misery uh, over what we don't have, but that we would be able to live with a state of blessedness knowing what we have in Christ. So go before us and help us to reflect on our own desires, our own heart's uh, contentment. And we pray that you would guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.